Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is the third and final part of a three-part series on the history of the institution of slavery and the value of freedom in Western thought. My guest for this series has been the great historical sociologist and public intellectual, Orlando Patterson. You're welcome to join us here at the end. I think this discussion does make sense as a self-contained whole. To bring you quickly up to speed, in the first episode, we discussed the nature and origins of slavery, with Professor Patterson arguing that we need to understand slavery as a system of personal violent domination, as opposed to our more usual idea of slavery as a system of ownership. In the second part, we argued contra most of what happens and is talked about in philosophy most of the time, that freedom is not a natural universal human value, that most people who've ever lived did not desire it, and that its origination was a deliberate invention in response to specific socio-historical circumstances, specifically that of large-scale slavery in ancient Greece. In this episode, we pick up that argument having discussed the origins of slavery and um, look at the way that freedom was spread throughout the world, particularly its diffusion with the Roman Empire and with Christianity. And we argue that but for those ideological developments, the modern way of thinking, including things like contemporary liberalism, would not exist. That the foundations of our world, including the foundations of our minds, how we see the world, the concepts and categories through which we process social reality, would not exist but for these ideological developments in the ancient world. If you're liking this interview series, you can follow and subscribe to get more great content like this. We have a new episode coming out every week. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and you can follow us on our RSS feed. The links to all of that are on the website. If you want to support this show, if you think it's valuable that we're getting these sort of long-form, in-depth interviews out there, then you can support us by sharing these episodes on your own social media. You can tag or forward to friends. And if you are able to support in a more monetary way, we have a Patreon account, and we suggest a donation of $2 an episode, or whatever amount seems right to you. And... As always, big thank you to anyone who does any of those things, and I'll be releasing some bonus content along with this episode on our Patreon page, which is just Patreon slash Political Philosophy Podcast, Patreon slash Political Philosophy Podcast, um, as a way of thanking the show's sponsors for doing that. So I'll be releasing a bonus episode, which will be a sort of unofficial fourth part with Professor Orlando Patterson. We actually ended up talking for most of the day, and I've structured this three-part series to try and bring you a coherent, sustained argument that tracks a single thread. We actually just stayed on the line and chatted in a more more informal, less structured way for a little bit. Um, We talked a bit more about Trump, 
we talked about the Queen in the UK, of all things, with, that was actually quite an interesting conversation, with um, Professor Patterson actually arguing in favour of the British monarchy, and me arguing against, which is kind of interesting if you think about our respective backgrounds. So if you want to hear the arguments that we made there, then you can head over on over to our Patreon page, and anyone who sponsors the show at any amount, even if it's like a dollar, will gain access to that. So that's as a thank you to um, my Patreon sponsors, and if you would like to sponsor us on Patreon, it's really super easy to do. I sponsored a couple of people recently, it's a couple of clicks online, decide the amount that works for you, and yeah, you'll be a part of bringing public philosophy to thousands of people, which is really cool, and you should totally do that. Um, yeah, otherwise, enjoy this episode as the final part. This has been a pretty big project in terms of researching, putting it together, editing it out. I'm just really proud of this result. And not to be too boastful, I'm somewhat impressed with my own ability to just have this conversation. This is a big, sustained argument spanning all of Western history. And I'm really, I'm really excited to bring it to you. So I hope you like it as much as I do. And I close the episode at the end with something I don't normally do, which is in my outro, I read you the last two pages of Orlando Patterson's work, Freedom, as a way to put a full stop in our argument and really, you know, his words are better than mine to sum it up. So that's what I went with. So stay tuned for that at the end. Otherwise, thanks to everyone who supports the show. This is my pleasure to bring you the third and final part of my Freedom series with Professor Orlando Patterson. to Rome, what is extraordinary about Rome is um, not only a continuation of this, but um, a um, a mass, this is when freedom becomes a mass value. And all the, the interesting thing about the Greeks is that they love freedom, they celebrated it, but they largely wanted to keep it to themselves. I mean, if you read Aristotle and Barbarians and so on, I mean, they're just not sort of worthy of this wonderful... How, how you feel about Cicero, I feel about Aristotle. Like, the man's a bore, like, and that he's so important to the history of the world is kind of astonishing. He's quite contradictory on slavery, isn't he? I mean, well, he certainly is very average on slavery. Because, and, once, and there's a profound contradiction in everything he writes about. It's because he himself, of course, you know, was a metic. I mean, he was a, a resident alien. And I mean, I mean, I never understood how he wrote the thing. I mean, he wrote the most horrible things about um, uh, slaves and slavery and about, of course, the idea that Non-Greeks are only worthy to be slaves. But anyway, yeah, we all have our contradictions. And um, I'm sure many of your colleagues in, in Britain would, um, who are Aristotelian scholars would be horrified at the idea that he's anything but a genius. But um, but no, we get to, um, I don't know, I mean, you want to go to Rome because Rome is important in the story. 
I mean, the Greeks would prefer to keep freedom to themselves. It broke out very soon from them. So um, there's a wonderful passage in Philo, the um, um, the Jewish um, uh, um, philosopher of the Hellenistic period, in which he describes um, going to a performance <coughs> of Euripides, and he said that. At, at the end of the um, of the play, people broke out into great sort of applause and so and just celebrating the term freedom, 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 and they said, "My God, I mean, you know, and uh, how wonderful it was." So, but this is even before Rome. What happens with Rome is just the what I call the universalization of the idea. Because, of course, Rome was this large-scale slave society which strongly emphasized um, freedom. In fact, the main meaning of freedom in Rome was libertas, which means not to be a slave. And, um, and, and, and But then you had slavery penetrating every section of the society. Um, it was, of course, in the, in the Latifonia, in the plantations, and, you know, I... I, one of the texts I had to read, studying Latin, of course, the earliest extant Latin text was Cato, the Agricultura, which was essentially a manual of how to run a slave plantation. <laughs> Can you imagine as a little colonial uh, schoolboy reading this text? And it was taught with sort of no sense of irony. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that's an amazing I mean, yeah, among, image. That's an amazing image. Yeah, among the things that went into my sort of you know, I mean, obsession with this subject is how is this possible? But anyway, um, um, but we um, found also in the urban economy, as in Rome, but also in the in in the entire lower section of the civil service, the only part of Rome which slaves weren't involved with was the military. That's just really just the most incredible thing, and of course. You had it in the um, in, in in the imperial court, in which the freedmen at one time, especially under the Claudian emperors, um, were virtually sort of dominated um, the imperial household. Nothing like this ever existed before or after. And central, you get the central development. Now, there's one very well documented, one of the best documented aspects of Roman um, history were, of course, these freedmen, this vast number of freedmen who basically ran the economy and sometimes created, you know, so a lot of people don't realize this, but Corinth, <laughs> which had been destroyed, was revived by freedmen and became a, the most extraordinary slave society. I mean, run by ex-slaves and, in fact, large-scale slavery facade with high proportion. Um, but... Um, the, the remarkable thing about Rome was that, unlike even Greece, freedmen celebrated the fact that there were once slaves and were freed. The most, the, 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 so you get this all over Rome now. Is it, um, it, it's all over Italy. It's on right, kind of like, like Americans love rags to riches stories. Like right, billionaires right, right. love bragging about right. their humble origins. Right, right, exactly, exactly. That's exactly. It's a good parallel. They're not ashamed of it, and reading some of these monumental inscriptions, it's just amazing. You know, <laughs> I Claudius or whatever um, was you know born and so and so became a slave of um, 
of, 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 of so-and-so, and on this date, achieve my freedom. And they celebrated the idea. So the, I, that, that negation then becomes something to be celebrated in a way in which it didn't even get in, in Greece, because I think most ex-slaves would rather, especially if they're highly skilled and so on. <laughs> have, um, but and then, of course, one of the funnier aspects of Roman society is that the, the patricians, the sort of like um, aristocrats, have this sort of like, we might call it like a new money snobbery to them is that they're because they're born into wealth they 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 look down on these people and kind of mock them and there's that whole dynamic as well there is that dynamic but they couldn't do it with too much of a straight face because you know by the first century um, um latin culture had been sort of so powerfully influenced by um ex-slaves and former slaves um, especially from Greece. And, uh, of course, much of Roman civilization was just a sort of um, replication, especially um, Roman philosophy, but also much of Roman culture. So <clears throat> it's hard. I mean, they may have been snotty, and they did become that way, but um, it was hard, because even the high culture. So, you know, look at the role of Horace, uh, who, who is one of the people I read I like. I said, my name, my, my official name, my birth name was Horace Orlando. So I mean, reeling his odes, sort of, I viewed with some pleasure. But Horace was the son of an ex-slave. He was, a, he was the son of a slave, a person who was once a slave. And he became the pinnacle of of Roman culture. And, um, you know, his writing, of course, was the powerful influence um, <clears throat> the development of the language, this is the literary culture. So, you, but you get it also in in the theater early on. You know, um, this sort of plays of Terence, <coughs> you know, and um, and Plautus. Uh, it's not only they're likely both ex-slaves, um, but I mean, if, if the dominant characters were slaves, so the, the whole civilization was permeated by these people who were one slaves who wanted to be freed. Freedom then became the dominant idea. And um, in in this, in this uh, also with persistence of um, the notion of freedom as power, but also freedom as liberation. Because what did a freedman want to do most? Um, once he got his freedom, especially if he was rich, was to own slaves. So, I mean, that wasn't seen as a contradiction. The idea of freedom as not only escape from slavery, but also having the power to sort of over others, and um, uh, and the the um that idea, uh, what what got muted in Rome was of course the idea of freedom as democracy, uh, um, the freedom of the free man. Right, because uh, you obviously the most famous bit of. Um, Roman history is like Caesar and Augustus and these huge figures yeah. of history who turned a republic into an empire. Yeah. Um, but right. freedom survives just in a different yeah. way. Right. And then what right. develops there is like this sort of stoic idea of freedom. You talked about how elites internalize yes. it. And my how I read you on stoicism is you view it as, as, as ultimately a failure in that it's just bland and kind of bloodless and it doesn't give people the real satisfaction of the lived right. experience of freedom, which I've... Certainly Epictetus thought so. I mean, I mean, I, I, he's, yeah, I spent a lot of time on Epictetus. Could you talk us through the sort of stoic, um, the sort of stoic conception and why you think that fails? Well, the, so 
everything is he was he was a verna. He was he was not just a slave. <coughs> he was born a slave in the household. And um learned to read and write. Um and then got his freedom. Uh and and then um of course is a very powerful mind. And so the, the question then which he asked, which none of the very few of the others ask, I mean, so this is celebrated by everyone else, but then said, Well, what does this mean? What is this? I've spent all my life yearning for this thing from the moment I was born. And so now I'm free. What does it mean? And, um, you know, his his work was just a long, long um, um, sort of reflection and um, uh, on on this idea, which he found increasingly not to be um, very satisfying. I mean, it must mean something more than uh, just not being a slave, and um, and 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 but what? And um, uh, to 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 do what he pleased, to do what is evil, to and um, and much of um, is is thought. I think there, there's a certain tragic element to Epictetus, uh, I find, and um, some people are even ir- irritated by it because. In the end, he sort of resorts to a notion of forbearance. Um, you know, there um, one simply sort of forbears and uh, accepts the world for what it is, and accepts the disappointment um, that freedom um, uh, um, turns out to be. Uh, and never really sort of coming up with any. Um, well, he, he sort of resorted to a Stoic sort of um, um, view, but his and his, his Stoicism many people find unsatisfying, but not 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 uh, of course uh, not everyone. And um, uh, and I I um, I I spent a lot of time trying to sort of um, move with him and uh, follow him through. And uh, and what is a very tragic sort of um, acknowledgement of the fact that this great thing which we are celebrating isn't all it's cracked out to be. And uh, and then and what else is there? And of course, I mean, Stoicism offered him the the option of a sort of um, um, a, a union with the world soul, um, which he also, I sometimes felt, um, was a little disappointed with. I mean, I think his work is one long sort of uh, exercise in um, in, in, in disappointment in what was supposed to be this most glorious thing, which he could not, because he could never come to <clears throat> grips with as something truly positive, because he saw one interpretation of it was power, and you're free to do as you please, but to do what? What, what is this thing you're pleased with? And, and it goes on and on and on, sometimes almost um, ad nauseum. But um, that um, that is a very um, uh, uh, powerful. It, it, he's the most powerful voice of a slave in history. I mean, the only other voice which comes anywhere close is, of course, Frederick Douglass. Um, that's why I read him in a sense not as a philosopher, but as an early Frederick Douglass, because Douglass also um, reflects on freedom a lot. And but in a much more positive way, Douglas had no doubt that this is the most wonderful thing. And in my in the um in the new preface to slavery and social death, I, I quote a passage from Frederick Douglass's autobiography, which just powerfully sums up slavery and social death, in which right after his famous fight with um the overseer who was trying to break him and he finally 
hit back and defeated him physically. He's got up and said, you know, um, before, before my triumph, my physical triumph, I mean, I was, um, in the, um, I was in the tomb of enslavement. And now uh, I have sort of risen, uh, you know, to the rebirth into freedom. This is like a complete sort of summary of, of the work. So um, Douglas had later reflections on freedom um, too, and uh, long after he became very successful, uh, but in a much more positive way. But old Epictetus um, never got that resolution. I mean, to the very end, um, it was just a very, this is a profound disappointment to him, perhaps because he saw the contradictions. He saw how, in fact, freedom could mean power and power to do evil. Or freedom could just mean um, the, the freedom to do as you please, which is um, which, which, which he found to be very distasteful because he's such a very virtuous person. So, I mean, that... I mean, they're, 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 I spent a long time sort of trying to sort of um, <laughs> um, uh, sympathize with and sort of go through his, his long as there are three volumes of it, and um, it does go on forever. But um, it's, it's a fascinating um, recognition of this inherent contradiction in freedom rather than a triumphalist approach to it, which he started with, of course, yippee, I'm free, finally, born a slave, I'm now free. And um, it's one long sort of um, um, slide to, down to pessimism about whether it was all worth and it. And one aspect that your book really brings out is that freedom is a felt experience, and, and that's missing even in so many books that are, that are um, written by philosophers about it, is... Is um, that freedom is is a state of mind? It's an emotion. Yes. And one thing you draw out with as well as Marcus Aurelius is that that people are trying to reason their way to a felt experience, and that's just not how human psychology works. I want to read a little, a, a couple of sentences of yours back to you. You 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 went through the whole failure of Stoicism, and you said, "quote No creed should so fail its adherents." The problem with late Stoicism for people such as Marcus and Epictetus was not so much that it was a spent force intellectually, but they sought something from it which it was incapable of providing. Spiritual freedom. Meaning, I, I, I take that to mean like the lived, felt experience of it. And then skipping ahead a little bit, you write, the Christian moment had not really arrived. It was long overdue. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, and the, so Christianity offered that um, um, uh, meaning, which poor Epictetus never had. And um, he was writing, of course, about the same time that um, that Paul lived. And Paul, of course, uh, and this is, this is very important. I mean, Paul is, in many respects, the single most important thinker in Western thought. I mean, wanted to see him as the Apostle Paul uh, and sort of categorize him as. And how 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 you feel about ancient Athens? I feel about Paul because I'm not religious and I've been very critical of religion. But then approaching it again, like you say, facts are facts. This guy changed the world. 
and it's in a way that's so surprising and so remarkable and again this thing of like the unlikeliness of history and the unlikeliness of like this this tiny cult that maybe I just did a huge series on early Christianity with Dale Martin maybe had two dozen members in it at the time of the founder's death is now going to burn down the house of the world Right, it's an amazing story, isn't it? And I, I mean, it's, I mean, and uh, you know, we uh, certainly, I mean, philosophers and and and, and scholars who tend to um, neglect the significance of religion, I mean, um, because of our own biases, um, um, just fail to see this. I mean, there's this guy who's, he's, he's in many ways rather. He apparently, had a, he, he spoke in a weird way, from, and he, he had a bit of a limp, and he was not the most prepossessing of persons. But my goodness, what he did was, of course, to completely appropriate the Palestinian religion of Christ, who was a real rebel, I mean, who was a genuine <laughs> radical. Uh, um, I mean... The Sermon on the Mount, Mount is almost never mentioned in, um, <laughs> in, in Southern Christianity, by the way. I mean, um, but it's, um, anyway, he appropriated this. And of course, I mean, um, he, he turned it around completely. He made it not the religion of Christ, because I guess he recognized that it was just too far out, um, um, but the religion about Christ. And it wasn't the religion about Christ's life and teachings, but about Christ's death. This is the total sort of um, um, transformation. And then, but then what I argue, and here we get back to ideas and social context, my theory of Paul is that he was, of course, living and writing at the height of Roman slave society. And... Um, he simply transposed <clears throat> the Roman and Stoic notion of um, slavery and freedom. Um, he got that idea from Stoicism, of course, and um, and interjected it and made it um, the central idea in Christianity, which is freedom. So um, if you listen to any, um, the central idea of Christianity is redemption. Mm-hmm. And um, if you listen to any sermon by fundamentalists um, in America on Sunday or any other day, um, that's a word which comes up most often. Um, And, of course, it comes from the Latin redemptio, which literally means to purchase someone out of slavery. Uh, to redeem and the uh, structural metaphor of slavery just runs through Paul, and you have both. Um, you have both like purchase models, which is in something like Galatians, where it's like the, the metaphor is becoming a member of the church with Christ is like. Um, that you've been released from slavery. It's like a manumission model. But then you've also got the moral universe of Romans, where it's a transference model, where it's like you were enslaved to sin, now you're enslaved to Christ, and that's much better. It's like it, it, it's like you have a better master somehow. Right. Uh, yeah. It's, it's literally, that's the word. I mean, you know, um, the, the more recent translations of the Bible, of course, I mean, says what perhaps earlier... Um, translators found almost two 
embarrassing or um, confounding, which is enslavement to God. It was the ultimate freedom. And uh, and also where you find your home. <clears throat> so, I mean, he just introduced <clears throat> But in doing that, you know, this is how you want the... the, the, the um, many people have sort of um, wondered about the longevity of freedom. So, in fact, some people even argue, and I don't know how much you've gone into this in your other um, <clears throat> discussions, um, what does this have to do with modern freedom? So, there are some um, who completely deny the connection, who um, who argue that, in fact, there was a complete break and that modern freedom began somewhere with the birth of capitalism. So, you know that story. I mean, one of my many um, um, struggles, if you like, and quarrels, is the fact that I, I, I hold a continuity view. Now, most people seem to think that making the claim of continuity is totally defeated by the Middle Ages. The argument is that something happened, it all collapsed with the collapse of Rome. And you had the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages and you had feudalism and there's nothing of freedom. And so you have to start with the Renaissance and then, of course, with the birth of capitalism. Uh, somewhere back there in early modern Europe, you got the revival of the idea. But that's, I mean, the, the work I'm doing now, long overdue, um, modern studies of freedom, is that, that idea is just completely wrong. Now, I have a very long um, chapter on a test strip for David Brian Davis called The Problem of Evil, in which I've argued that, in fact, we are completely wrong in our view that the Middle Ages had nothing to do with freedom. It's just well, not true. I use the metaphor, and tell me if you agree with this as a characterization. Again, this is on my uh, Dale Martin interview, where we did quite a, a, one of these kind of quite extended interviews. I have to see that interview, by the way. Is it is this online? Yeah, I'll, right? I'll, um, if you give me your email, I'll send it to you. Um, yeah, please. But um, I use the metaphor of like a, a, it's like an ideological seed in that. The, the, the sort of plant would be the institutional expression in terms of democracies or republics or something like that. But you, you always have the seed, and it's always there, ready to reflower. So it flowered in Athens to an extent, it flowered in Rome, but then of course the plant died with the collapse of the republic. And But freedom in the, in the sort of sovereignial sense was retained and it was just always there for like another thousand years and then it reflowers and you get people i mean like the reformation like um luther right. like okay. calvin like the the city states in the Locke. italian yes who who Locke. yes and one of the other things is um I mean, Locke is a prime example of this in that I've always argued, even like uh, in, when I was doing my undergrad, what Locke is not a political theory. Locke is the, the political consequences of a religious theory. Yeah, it's applied religion, it's applied theology. Much of Locke, I consider... So the seed, you mentioned the seed. The seed didn't die. The seed got buried in Christianity. Right, the, yeah, the, seeds, the seed uh, survives even if the plant yes, is in gone. Yes, Christianity, yeah. And, and note one thing, which my long my study of the Middle Ages um, indicated. I did a study of um, what do the ordinary people think. Um, so obviously, the whole point the the the, the of um, the middle medieval Christianity 
was to prevent the masses from actually coming to a realization of what the true meaning of freedom in Christianity was. And of course, they used a very simple, rather ingenious in its simplicity, which is to have the mass in Latin. <laughs> it's just like such a dumb <laughs> trick that played out over like 800 years. Of like... <laughs> they, didn't have, they didn't imagine going to, you didn't have a clue what this is all about, but you're doing it. It's just amazing. I'm still, I mean, how did I got away with it? Well, they didn't always get away with it because, and this is uh, my, my essay in, 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 the, in the Davis book, was that there's, and Mark Bloch first made this point, that the Middle Ages was a long series of rebellions, of peasant revolts. And what's interesting about 90% of these revolts was that they were led by renegade priests. And what these renegade priests were doing was simply saying, do you know what's really in those scriptures? I mean, which you, you, you don't have a clue because you don't read Latin. But, you know, and especially people from upwardly mobile working class priests who sort of could now read Latin, let me tell you what the story is all about. And that became the ideological basis of most of the peasant revolts. I mean, so once the idea gets out, and of course, the elites knew this, which is why you did everything to either say, to, to teach it in Latin, or if word got out, this is what is really gone, is of course to say that it's all about your inner soul and that your reward will be in heaven. And um, don't even think about the present world. But it didn't It didn't remain planted all the time. There's a long series of culminating in the um, in the German peasant revolt in the early 16th century, which of course interpreted eagerly, enthusiastically, interpreted Luther as Luther's early ideas should be interpreted as um, uh, as an expression of freedom, not only spiritually but also freedom politically, uh, which of course gave. Um, um, made Luther almost apoplectic. And of course, that's when he said, no, you got me wrong. You got me all wrong. But they didn't get him wrong. Uh, that's when he's turned to the, uh, the princes and sort of, you know, so the, the Reformation became the Reformation of the princes because he saw the danger there. But his ideas were clearly um, uh, 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 you know, an, an, an expression of um, uh you know, what is there in the basic sort of um, um, notion of Christianity, which is that, um, you know, I mean, freedom, in, in all three senses, by the way, in, in the sense of liberation out of being Jesus bought you with his death out of slavery to sin, that freedom, of course, in the body of Christ, which is the democratic idea, you're all equal in Christ. If you get it in Paul, um, uh, Philippians, you get also, um, of course, the idea of freedom as power. I mean, and in 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 Romans, of course, uh, which is what the elites, of course, um, emphasize. But right through the Middle Ages, we find that whenever the idea is uncovered, whenever it gets projected back into the world, it's immediately its significance is immediately grasped. And um, one of the interesting things about modern history of freedom is that it wasn't just this. Um, well, but for, let me back up. Much of modern political theology in the early modern period was basically just a secularization 
of um, a lot of Christian thought. And, um, and Locke has been read now. I think the con- you may know more this, about this than I do, but my reading of Locke and my reading of some of the better interpretations, such as Dunn's um, interpretation, is that it's, it's, it's in essence a kind of secularized theology. I mean, you, you knew, of course, that Locke spent a lot of time, he wrote... He wrote commentary on all the Gospels. <laughs> Nobody well, reads those. Was abs- Locke was absolutely... He was a... We would we would recognise him today as a religious fanatic. Absolutely, um, yes, yes. So let me... I mean, here's, here's, here's how Locke's... And it's a little while since I've studied this, so if there are any Locke scholars on here, maybe just grit your teeth through this bit. But he's what he's doing is he's taking some very central theological ideas and kind of just mapping them to the human realm. So there's three in particular. There's the idea of the workmanship theory of creation. Um, There's there's the idea of divine ownership. And then there's this sort of idea where we don't think about rationality this way, but it's like the idea that because you made something, you understand it. So the idea would be in the divine sense that God... So, so, so this ex nihilo creation, which is like God just snaps his fingers and the universe appears, which actually is probably more theologically tenable. But then there's workmanship, i.e. God labors. He does the six days and whatever, right? He owns the yes. world and all of us in it because he made it. He also understands the world, and that's kind of the hardest for us to grasp, but he understands the world because he made it. And then, then just map all of those down to, to, to the political. We are owned by God means that we are owned by God and not at each other. We are built to me- right. at his measure and not at the measure of those around us. So that grounds the idea of like a limited sort of political freedom and a sort of yeah. individualism that's inherent to this sort of proto-liberalism. And then um, the idea of like... like you, you under you, what you create, you own maps to the idea yes. of property rights. So the idea right. that if we labour on a bit of land, we own right. the land, and then it also maps to the idea of reason and understanding the social structure rationally, because because God created the world, He understands it all, divine omnipotence. But because we create the social world, the laws by which that social world is governed are rationally discoverable. So out of that right. weird little theological trickery, you get the idea of the individual, of human rights, of property owning, and of rationality applied to the social sphere, which right. are absolutely the foundation blocks of modern liberalism. Absolutely. But there is one, don't forget one rather radical direction which um, slipped out, which is since the world is God's, and we in attaching or labor to it have in fact um, are derived from something sacred and are making out of a divine block um, with our labor, uh, the value then becomes sacred. And, and the, the labor theory, a, a, an early version of the labor theory of value, don't forget, is in Locke, which, 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 which he never sort of fully, <laughs> it's kind of, it dangles out there, but you know, I mean, the, 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 that value is created by our labor in sort of um, fashioning from this divine sort of, um, you know, um, material. 
which God gave us makes what we create our, our own. And that, uh, that, 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 well, it, 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 get, it dangles out there. Marx later on, I, uh, of course, <laughs> this is developed not necessarily from Locke, but I mean, it's important to note that Locke had this sort of, that his theology led him in this direction, which he sort of never quite sort of um, developed you can, very far. But you can yeah. draw, albeit a very bendy line, from some of these ideas to some of the more radical currents that, that develop later, because Locke, let's be clear, was no radical. Like, I'm, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I believe he owned shares in a, a, a slave-holding company or something like that. Oh, 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 Locke, Locke, read, Locke wrote the Constitution of Carolina. <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> or we can go into the contradiction. He actually was hired to and wrote the Constitution of Carolina, which um, you know had slavery enshrined in the Constitution. He, he also, so, my favorite ever Locke quote <laughs> is he referred to the idea of universal suffrage as quote utter depravity. So um, yeah, Locke, Locke, Locke was what what we might call like um, an establishment person in today's in today's language. But you're quite right. The idea of owning what you produce comes yes. back. Well, I mean, Marx is a good example because Marx, in some ways, is saying, "Look, I'm taking the same starting points as you guys are." You're just you're yes. just not being consistent. If you own what you produce, how come this poor schmuck in the factory, like eighty percent of the value he's creating is going to the capitalist if you own what you produce? Yes, yes, I, absolutely. But you know, I mean, I, for me, um, Christianity becomes. I mean, there is no um, break. There's no big break, which is um, what many of our. Um, if you read modern histories of freedom, they all begin. Um, somewhere in early modern Europe, they either go to the Renaissance or or it's it's or it's it's it's, it's capitalism, um, and um, this is where, of course, I find myself isolated from my fellow sociologists. But, but the Renaissance and even capitalism comes out of theological ideas, and there's this huge thing. Even you get to like Weber, and they're trying to explain what is it like that's unique about Protestantism, that it does seem to be generative of this economic mode of production. Like, it's, it's clear all the way through. It's only very, very recently that, that sort of like economics becomes untethered from those moorings and liberalism becomes secularized. But liberalism, modern liberalism is, a, is, is, and this is an interesting contradiction for atheists to explain, is, um, we can deny the, the, the you know the, the the overtly supernatural claims of religion, and I I would agree with that denial. But then there's also this interesting contradiction of we are living within not just physical structures but mental structures like liberalism that are built by Christianity. And like, how do you make sense of that as as, as like trying to develop an ethical philosophy? You know? Oh, it it can be done. I mean, um, we just see well. You know, all over Scandinavia now, there are theology departments um, in which professors are avowed um, atheists. So the idea there is that you can see how the um, the religion was very powerful in influencing minds uh, and and thought that later developed into 
um, philosophies, whether freedom or what have you, which um, uh, which are very important in a purely secular way. I mean, there's no necessary contradiction in being uh, an atheist and recognizing the great value of Christianity in its development or development of our civilization. And unfortunately, I mean, a lot of people don't see this simple truth, and so. Um, Weber, uh, of course, is the closest thing to um, uh, someone who who's, who holds this view and uh, and whose views are respected. Although he's, he's been very severely criticized, so that um, one of the leading current historians, uh, economists, who writes a lot on freedom, uh, of course, is da, um, uh, Darren Ajamoglu of MIT, very powerful mind, and um, whose works on institutions are happen to find um, extremely valuable. But he, he, he actually takes um, Weber seriously, but ends up saying, you know, that, that um, that's not what, um, that, that, that it doesn't work. Um, that what you need, of course, is um, just all you need is respect for private property and, um, and the institution of um, which uphold private property to explain later development. But we needn't get into that. What I'm saying is that um, it's possible to recognize the value of um, Christianity and, um, and its enormous importance um, in, in generating secular ideas. Of course, in America, um, you must know that um, it's Christianity is alive and well um, Quite, in, in, and in a, seems almost in, to be playing that role of they seem to have found a way to read them the last mass in Latin, except they're reading it to them in their own language and they're still not hearing it. Absolutely, and of course it's becoming more powerful now because the Supreme Court has just been taken over by the right, right. which of course is um, completely in the... Um, in in, in in the control of um, some of the most conservative forces uh, in America right now, the minority of fundamentalists. In fact, the, the, the reason why Christian fundamentalists support a man who is arguably um, the, 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 the most sort of, um, you know, um, uh, un-Christian uh, and vulgar and sinful person to, um, to, to, to assume the presidency. They support him precisely because um, they recognize that he'd have the power to make appointments to Supreme Court, um, which will pr- uh, um, promote the aims of fundamentalist Christians. So it, they, they are now ascendant. Yeah, um, I made the exact so. same point in my interview with Michael Frieden. Um, like the, 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 the extreme decisiveness that the Supreme Court can wield has really poisoned our democracy recently, in that you have people yeah. who are self-aware that they're voting for someone who is the, the walking annihilation of their worldview. Um, and and they're still voting for him because it's almost like um I made the point as like it's utilitarian right it's 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 like if uh, uh, abortion really is murder then that just sort of overwhelms any other consideration and you you have to you have to vote for um just 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 the 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 it, it's almost like one of these scenarios people give as counterexamples to consequentialism like you'd really vote for this guy and and yes they did well, yeah and they, there's been polls now which have asked you know i mean um does a person's um political 
behavior and views have to um, con- comport with, conform to his personal behavior. Until recently, I mean, Southern fundamentalists said, absolutely, yes. I mean, you know, you are a hypocrite, you are ungodly, you are not fit to be, to believe. Now, the great majority said, no, the two are not connected in the most recent poll, just last week. Can you believe that? But, you know, there's an old, we, we mentioned this term before, um, there's an old expression, out of evil cometh good. <laughs> well, let's, let's hope that's the, that's the case this time round. Okay, let's, let's pause there. Thank you so much for doing this. I really value your time. Goodbye. Nice talking with you. I enjoy this very much, and I hope to meet you sometime. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you want to support the show and help us keep bringing these episodes out every week for free, then sharing, forwarding is always really appreciated, as is tagging friends who you think might like it. And if you're able to, as is supporting us on Patreon, Um, for a suggested donation of $2 an episode, or whatever it is that seems right to you. And as I mentioned, if you do sponsor us on Patreon, you'll gain access to some bonus content with me and Professor Patterson talking about black radicalism, Trump some more, Christianity some more, arguing about the Queen. So I I don't know if that will be interesting to people, but if it is, that's on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. The links to follow us, subscribe are all on our website, which is politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And if you have been interested in our discussion of Christianity, I'll also recommend another three-part series I did with the New Testament historian and scholar, Professor Dale Martin. That was pretty popular and well-reviewed by Christians and non-Christians alike, so I encourage you to check that out. To close this series, I wanted to try and sum up why I think this is an interesting and important thesis, the idea that freedom was constructed, and the idea that it is quite historically unique, and the idea that it came about specifically because of slavery. Why is that important? And I think the ultimate punchline is that it matters for how we see ourselves, and that how we see ourselves will impact on how we see what being moral to each other is. And Rather than try and clumsily put it into my own words, I'm just going to read you the final few paragraphs from Professor Orlando Patterson's Freedom in the Making of Western Culture. This, I think, does a better job than I'm going to at providing a final what does it all mean. So, this is from Freedom. The virtues of a democratic system of government need no defence. It is safe to say that it is the best form of government, and its invention and history, however episodic and bloody, are among the greatest achievements of Western civilization. But there is something evil at the very core of this great system of governance. Plato and other conservative thinkers in classical Greece also had deep misgivings about the earliest democracy in which they lived, but they failed to note its gravest moral failing. No doubt, because they took it so much for granted. The fact 
that the principle of participative politics and the extension of the franchise were invigorated by the exclusion and domination of others. When Robert Mitchells wrote that, quote, democracy leads to oligarchy and necessarily contains an oligarchical nucleus, end quote, he was historically correct, though with this important qualification. The oligarchic clique he feared could be, and often was, a majority of free men, sometimes even a moral majority. It is no accident that the first and greatest mass democracies of the ancient and modern worlds, Athens and the United States, share this evil in common. They were both conceived in and fashioned by the degradation of slaves and their descendants and the exclusion of women. The chronic identical evils of Athenian xenophobia and misogyny and the antebellum American racism, nativism, and sexism served a common purpose and nurtured a common good. The profound commitment of both cultures to the inspired principle of participative politics. We, the citizens, the people, the free, those who we hold dear, those whom we marry, kith, kin, not in bondage, noble, glad, illustrious, beloved. We, the politically free body of men, always, it would seem, tragically require the them who do not belong. The ignoble, the non-kith, the non-kin, the people we do not marry, the alien within, the serf, the Jew, the Slav, the slave, the negro, the people who cannot vote, who demarcate what we are, the domestic enemy who defines who we love. If this history of the West's most important value has taught us anything, then, it is not mainly the, quote, fragility of goodness, as Nussbaum rightly, but rather too gently conceives of it, and certainly not to take the opposite brutalist extreme of Robert Mitchell's, that there are iron sociological laws of freedom that, quote, go beyond good and evil, end quote. There are no such iron laws in human culture, and nothing goes beyond good and evil. What we have learned, rather, is the tragic interdependence of good and evil. To its great credit, Western culture has never tried to conceal this terrible truth, though it is one our present era is all too eager to shun. From its secular Greek roots, the West learned the lesson of the tragic dramatists, that the only wisdom worthy of remembrance comes from struggle and unfathomable suffering. Freedom is the gift of wisdom won from pain. From its Judeo-Christian religion, forged in the sickening horror of Roman slave society, the West learned the reinforcing spiritual truth that, quote, out of evil cometh good. The vision of Israel emerged from the bondage of Egypt. Redemption, spiritual freedom, was not simply liberation from slavery to sin, But as Paul saw in his fearsome vision, the suffering of sin made necessary the coming of the Christ and the promise of the cross, that central and most protean civilizational symbol of death and rebirth, estrangement and reconciliation, slavery and salvation. Less obviously, but for that very reason, more subliminally potent, in the image of the nailed dying God, we see the permanent horror of constraint. In the image of the wooden cross, 
the vertical crossroads, the Pythagorean Y, we see the ultimate veneration of choice. Whether we choose to believe in this or not, it is in this strange, terrifying vision, at once mortal and divine, that has fashioned the culture and genius of the West. All who have come up from the abyss of slavery and serfdom, the children of slaves, as well as the children of slave mongers, must be humbled by this truth each time we celebrate our freedom.